Hey everybody, Yislike here. Thanks for tuning in today. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by A Thousand Dreams, a developing adult liberal arts curriculum that celebrates transgression in most of its forms. Currently, the curriculum is comprised of a daily blog, four weekly podcasts, weekly multimedia lectures, a book vlog, lots of extra content on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest, and a Patreon that includes exclusive content and early access to much of our regular content. You can access all of our content, including a link to our Patreon, from our central hub at a thousanddreams.org. Please send comments and questions about the curriculum to a thousanddreams.org at gmail.com. In the meantime, enjoy the show. Hey everybody. Before we get started, I just need to let you know that this episode, episode 30, is the last episode of season one of Meet the Rockadopolis. And we will be taking a break until the first week of July when we will publish episode one of season two. We're on hiatus. During our hiatus, we will be working on setting up our A Thousand Dreams website, the blog, a new YouTube channel, as well as two new podcasts and a book vlog. Season two of Meet the Rockadopolis will be dedicated to exploring the newly reopened post-vaccination kinkyverse and we'll be going to new places and doing new things, which we will share with you if we think you'll find them interesting. Until then, we'll be more active on social media, so please continue to check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, FetLife, and maybe even Tumblr. And also look out for a few mini episodes from our Patreon, which is also being revamped. So we hope you enjoy episode 30. everyone. Welcome to Meet the Rockadopolis. We are Yislike and Lance Rockadopolis. And today we're going to talk about the social justice kink, or actually more specifically, my social justice kink. So I define the social justice kink, a term that I coined myself, as getting turned on by talking about and engaging in activities associated with different areas of social justice, including anti-racism and reparations, LGBTQ rights, women's rights, educational equity, rights for the differently abled, and so on. And I've worked professionally and as a volunteer on projects associated with all of these issues, really for my entire adult life and even high school, um, I know that I'm not the only person who finds this kind of work sexy. And today we're going to provide examples of different ways that social justice work and sex intersect. But I think for me, the fetish really developed as a means of sublimating 
my kinky sexuality at the time of my life when I really was not able to accept it. It does seem to be a very idiosyncratic kink, or at least it is the way I define it, but we all have our little ways. So before we discuss my social justice fetish, we're going to discuss two important terms, both of which you are probably at least somewhat familiar with. So first, I'm going to briefly discuss the term fetish, and then secondly, Lance is going to discuss the term sublimation. After that, we'll talk about the history of the connections between sex and social justice, and then I'll talk more about my own experience of the connections between sex and social justice. So the word fetish has had a long and rather sordid evolution, which I will actually be talking about in our kink theory podcast, which we will be launching the first week in July. But today I'll just provide three very basic definitions of the term, two from Google and one which I've gleaned from FetLife. So the first Google definition of fetish is an inanimate object worshipped for its supposed magical powers or because it is considered to be inhabited by a spirit. The second Google definition is a form of sexual desire in which gratification is linked to an abnormal degree to a particular object, item of clothing, part of body, etc. And then the third definition that I'm going to provide is what I consider to be FetLife's current de facto definition of quote-unquote fetish, which appears to be anything you find arousing or even pleasant in any way, especially if it's weird or unusual or clever to say that you're aroused by it. I was going to ask yeah. whether that arousal was only sexual in nature, based on the FetLife definition. That's a good question, and I think that I mean, people list all kinds of things as fetishes on fat life, right? So I'm actually going to be really using the third definition of, of fetish, fat life's definition for this, dis for this discussion, just because it's so general. And what I'm talking about is so idiosyncratic, I guess, in some ways. So now Lance is going to talk about sexual sublimation. Okay, sublimation is... According to Wikipedia, the process of transforming sexual libido or negative desires, such as hurting or wanting to kill somebody, into a, quote, socially useful achievement or practice. Uh, and that includes the artistic and the cultural and intellectual pursuits. Freud considered this psychical operation to be fairly positive compared to others that he identified and those would be repression, displacement, denial, reaction, reaction formation, intellectualization, and even projection. So when you're sublimating, you're putting your egotistic primitive energies into, quote, good use. Cool. Yeah, so it's basically a positive thing, at least in comparison to repression, right? Mm -hmm. Or acting out in weird ways. Right. Even his daughter, Anna, got involved in it. In The Ego and Mechanisms of Defense, 1936, she classified sublimation as one of the major defense mechanisms of the psyche. 
Freud indicated that the degree of sublimation hmm. is inversely proportional, meaning that the strength of the negative feeling determines the power of the positive. Nice. That's a good thing, right? Yeah. If you have a really dark, bad feeling, it can turn into an equally positive, good feeling. Correct. Freud felt that this lay at the heart of many of the great achievements of man within the arts, science, and politics. And in fact, he studied Leonardo da Vinci. He published a psychoanalytical study of that particular artist based on his painting. Part of Freud's source includes writings from Leonardo from the Codex Atlanticus. Here, Leonardo recounts being, quote, attacked as an infant in his crib by the tail of a vulture. Quote, a vulture came down to me. He opened my mouth with his tail and struck me a few times with his tail against my lips. According to Freud, this fantasy was based on the memory of sucking his mother's nipple when he was a baby. And okay, well, that's fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Typical of Freud. The painting that I mentioned, The Virgin Child with St. Anne, depicts two women with a baby, and there is a shawl wrapped around the virgin that's blue that's basically forms the shape of a bird. Whether it's a vulture, I'm not sure about that. But the tail is positioned at the baby's mouth. Wow, that's really weird. Isn't it? Yeah. This is why I like Freud, because the weirdness never stops. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just unending weirdness. Yeah, Freud believes that we all do this, this sub power of sublimation. I mean, I, I do think it is a power because we can get motivation and energy from our sexual frustration that is interesting and that would be a cool topic for for our kink theory podcast because really is all kink sublimation you know what i mean like hmm. is kink a kind of sublimation as opposed to just like a raw expression of sexuality that's interesting yeah yeah i i look forward to exploring that a little bit yeah, but uh, like I said, we all use the energy of s sexual frustration and to power other efforts. It's what Alain de Bouton in the School of Life video called a fulfilling second best. And there are many proponents that say that turning sexual energy into something productive is beneficial. And it can motivate you to meditation, exercising, increasing your social skills and talking to others and keeping yourself busy with hobbies, gardening, reading, intellectual pursuits. So in researching for this podcast, you asked me, did I sublimate my sexuality when I was younger? And I wasn't sure and I was kind of uh, hesitant to say yes. Um, maybe to some small degree, maybe <laughs> repressed might be a better word. I did have interest in intellectual pursuits, particularly history and music. But later in life, it was transferred to exercising. But for the most part, I, I think that I didn't sublimate because previously I talked about fully exploring my sexuality 
and my desires to push myself sexually in order to understand what would be expected of me as a slave. Right. You were preparing yourself for having a mistress at, right. at one point, right? Correct. And we've talked about that and it was effective. Yes, you are a very, very good slave. And thank you. I'm blushing. I would recommend that preparation process to other to other aspiring submissive and slave men, actually. However, you know, I have to wonder, just since we're on the topic, if that preparation that you did for having a mistress wasn't a kind of sublimation itself. Over the last couple of days, I've been chatting with men on FetLife about solo chastity, mm -hmm. right? And what they get out of keeping themselves in chastity. And a lot of them, not all of them, say that it that they are preparing themselves for their having a mistress, that it will eventually be for having a mistress. Some of them don't say that, though. One person said that chastity was about part of his identity hmm. as a sub. So I wonder if it, telling yourself, well, this is actually really about a future mistress instead of about me and my needs. I wonder if that makes it a kind of a sublimation. For me, yeah, it, it was definitely preparation. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I thought that there was a bit yeah, of Yeah, but you don't enjoy any kind of kinkies. <laughs> I mean, it really uh, depends on the definition of enjoy, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, maybe. But uh, you found it to be hollow? Even masturbation for me seems like a function that I need to get over with so I can regain my, my sanity. Yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was all for someone else, and it was all nebulous. When you put yourself in chastity, did you, and do all of the things like going out onto Miami beach with in a speedo and stuff. Mm -hmm. Were you actually thinking about like a fantasy mistress? Did you have an image in your head or a fantasy going when you were doing yeah, that? Sometimes when, when the sexual desire was strong, that would come to mind. But for me, it was just pushing my own limitations and boundaries and wanting mm. to get as far as possible without getting arrested <laughs> well regardless you you did a really good job at it i have to say honestly i'm very very grateful for that okay so now we're going to talk about sex and social justice in the united states a brief history so i'm going to talk first about emma goldman and anarchism and the turn of the 20th century anarchist movement. And then Lance is going to talk about the 1960s. So Emma Goldman is probably most famous now for her quote that is all over posters and license plates and t-shirts, um, which is, if I can't dance, I don't want your revolution. And she was an anarchist. She was part of the anarchist movement in the United States in the late 19th century into the early 20th century. But in her work is one of the earliest relatively modern discussions of the connection between sex and sensuality and liberal politics. And the idea of dancing doesn't really seem to be sexual necessarily. 
And actually, there's no evidence that she ever said that famous quote. However, sexual freedom was a very important part of the American anarchist movement that Emma Goldman led. And she had all kinds of ideas about sexual freedom, including the idea that capitalism, which for her absolutely needed to be eradicated, was based largely on sexual and reproductive control because inheritance of wealth was such a big part of maintaining the capitalist class system. So here's a quote from a scholar named Claire Hemmings in the academic journal Feminist Review. Not only does Goldman consistently situate sexuality in a broad political context of the sexual division of labor, the institutions of marriage and the church, consumerism, patriotism, and productive as well as reproductive labor, she frames sexual freedom as both the basis of new relationships between men and women and as a model for a new political future, end quote. So there is no evidence that Emma Goldman said that specific quote about revolution, but in her memoir, she does talk about an episode that is probably the source of that made-up quote. During the heyday of the anarchist movement on the East Coast, they would hold a lot of parties, have a lot of celebrations, a lot of get-togethers, and, um, and dances. There was always dancing. So Emma Goldman writes in her memoir, At the dances, I was one of the most untiring and gayest. One evening, a cousin of Sasha, who is, was her close friend and colleague, a young boy, took me aside with a grave face as if he were about to announce the death of a dear comrade he whispered to me that it did not behoove an agitator to dance certainly not with such reckless abandon anyway it was undignified for one who was on the way to become a force in the anarchist movement my frivolity would only hurt the cause what a stick in the mud yeah what a little shit right I grew furious at the impotent interference of the boy. I told him to mind his own business. I was tired of having the cause constantly thrown in my face. I did not believe that a cause which stood for a beautiful ideal, for anarchism, for release and freedom from conventions and prejudice, should demand the denial of life and joy. Mm -hmm. I insisted that our cause could not expect me to become a nun and that the movement should not be turned into a cloister. If it meant that, I did not want it. I want freedom, the right to self-expression, everybody's right to beautiful, radiant things. Anarchism meant that to me, and I would live it in spite of the whole world, prisons, persecution, everything. Yes, even in spite of the condemnation of my own comrades, I would live my beautiful ideal. So, would you consider? That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. Would you consider her a libertine? Well, that's a good question. I wouldn't be surprised if people called her a libertine, but she was too positive. You know, she was too like pro. <laughs> the libertines were assholes. They were awesome, but but they were dark. She's too light and full of like joy and optimism. I kind of disagree because it seems like the whole society is very repressive and dark and 
brooding. I, I think this joie de vivre comes out as libertinism to me. Right. Certainly it could in, in Victorian, in the Victorian era of the United States, right? Mm -hmm. It probably would have shocked a lot of people. Yeah. And I believe her outlook continues on to the 19, what, what people call the 1960s. And that decade is termed as the sexual revolution. And it was all mixed up with many of the other social and political movements of that time. It's pretty obvious that the sexual revolution is tied to the social and political movement of that era. And it actually didn't begin in 1960. It actually began in 1962-63 with the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, the Beatles arriving in New York had something to do with that as well. But I think the biggest thing was the protests of the Vietnam War and actually the ending of the quote 1960s ends with that very monumental event meaning the withdrawal of troops from Vietnam that whole era was punctuated by protests countercultural movements revolution in social norms about clothing music drugs and it also included a relaxation of social taboos that occurred during that time and the chief among them being the issue of sexuality and uh, the development of medically prescribed contraception. It ushered a decisive break with the preceding conservative values, which prescribed confinement of women's sexual pleasures within heterosexual marriage. Sexuality became political, emerging as an axis around which new social movements organized. There was a shift in the relation between men and women as well, particularly those inspired by the emergent women's liberation movement. Women started protesting the annual Miss America pageant. There was a second wave feminism after the suffragette movement. Writers and activists like Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan became prominent. There was an increased presence of women in the public realm, including work. Additionally, gay and lesbian movements became political in the late 1960s and early 70s. There were reforms in the legal and medical regulation of sexuality as well. Previously, I mentioned contraception, but in addition to that, abortion became legal and there was a relaxation of the censorship laws. And this, in turn, led to a proliferation of pornography and sex in the mass media. One can view it as commercialization and commodification of sex. What, what do you think about the 1960s? You know, looking back and reading different memoirs of the 60s, it seemed like it was a very mixed bag for women in particular. I remember reading an essay years ago that talked about how the birth control meant that women had no reason not to have sex with men. It was like for so long that women were restricted sexually because of the threat of getting pregnant out of wedlock. And then with the pill, that was gone. And so a lot of liberal hippie type men 
just expected the women to want to have sex with them. And if they didn't want to have sex with them, they couldn't use the excuse of potentially getting pregnant anymore. And so then it was just about them not being attracted to the man. And that became very dangerous for the women. But right. I, I would argue suddenly it was, it was, yeah, I, w- I would argue that it's a lot more empowering as well. It's a lot more honest. Well, and the pill as sex as being sexually empowering to women is certainly the mainstream dominant narrative of the sexual revolution. But as the as the decades went on, more and more came out about how misogynistic hippie men were. You know, it was still extremely male dominant and women were still relegated to being, you know, the secretaries and the helpmeets of those civil rights movements. And if they did not want to cooperate with meeting the men's sexual needs, then that was going to be a problem for them because it was threatening to the men because then it was because they actually didn't want to have sex with the men. Uh, I see that as basically growing pains (laughs) even to discuss the issues of patriarchy. I think that was absolutely necessary. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying that it was a bad thing. I'm saying that it just the the narrative that that came out right after that time period has evolved over time. And I think at this point, I'm kind of happy that people are now beginning to talk about women's authentic sexuality, that female sexuality actually can be very, very different from male sexuality. And PIV sex is just not going to actually do it for most women. I mean, a lot of research has shown that. So sure, I definitely think that that was an important step, a very important step in the right direction for women's actual, toward women's actual sexual freedom and sexual authenticity. And for men's own awareness of how their behaviors are affecting women. Sure, except that that maybe came a little bit later. On the other hand, there are other narratives, much more positive narratives about female sexuality and the sexual revolution for women. Free love and leftist politics did seem to be deeply intertwined during that period. And I found a quote from the the British newspaper, The Guardian, where a woman journalist wrote, Wearing those skirts, listening to pop music, having a good deal of frivolous sex, and consuming various illegal substances were closely connected to reading groups studying Hegel and Marx and campaigning against a scary neocolonial war in which a thousand men were dying each month. Yes, it was fun. Yeasty. (laughs) But it was a serious kind of fun. So there are all different kinds of stories coming out of that time period. So I've talked previously on this podcast about how much I repressed my sexuality due to my dominant and sadistic nature. I did a lot of sublimation of sexual energy, for lack of a better term, just because of the of the very taboo nature of my personal sexual orientation. I think my first and main sublimation was orality, eating and talking. 
And the talking was usually an intellectual thing. The more heady and intellectual, the better. In high school, I got really interested in environmental justice. I went to seminars and retreats, and I decided to go to Humboldt State University. Yes, a little bit for the weed, but mostly to study wildlife management and interpretation, which I believe was the only college to have that major at that time. But when I got to college and then grad school and then teaching, social justice, justice for humans really became my focus. Learning about the dynamics of privilege and oppression was really an important part of my moral development. When I was teaching, I was on various committees pertaining to diversity and hiring of faculty of color and recruiting students of color where I was teaching was a very notoriously white university. And all this time I wasn't having sex or very rarely outside of my very kinky sexual fantasies. But one thing that I noticed over the years about sexual sublimation is that the sexual energy never quite seems to get fully transformed into the into the wholesome vibe that you're trying to create with the sublimation. Whether it's a Christian youth group or volunteering at a homeless shelter or teaching business communication to NBA students, there can, can often be an erotic undertone to the interaction. And this is one reason why sexual sublimation may not be the best choice in different situations. Like, for example, a 25-year-old male youth pastor may not be the best person to lead a Bible study for a room full of sexually frenzied 16-year-old girls. If you're dead set, as I was, on never ever meeting your authentic sexual needs, they still might leak out, and really in unexpected and sometimes very undesirable ways. And for me, because of the nature of my sexuality, it wasn't just that low-down tickle that I got from being a do-gooder. It was also a big power trip that came along with it. There was a megalomania associated with a sense of moral superiority. But when I did finally embrace my authentic sexual orientation, it was partly in response to a massive failure on my part to achieve some social justice goals that I had been working on passionately for several years. And I'm going to need to put this in very general terms, but my overconfidence and my drastic overestimation of my abilities were no match for the institutional powers that I was up against. And I was, and probably still am, too grandiose to be satisfied with being a grunt worker for the cause. I just wasn't okay with wearing out my mind and my body and my heart for the sake of minute short-term improvements in the lives of a tiny number of people. And it was right around that time when I realized that I was actually doing a really shitty job trying to help people when I finally had the impetus to confess to my therapist, who I knew was from San Francisco, that I was kinky and that I needed to make contact with other kinksters ASAP. And she was absolutely shocked 
because I had been hiding it so well, but she was supportive ultimately. And here I am with a beautiful slave talking very openly about my dominance and sexual sadism. And as it turns out, there is in fact a fair amount of social activism in the kink community, and there always has been. There's a lot of activism around making kinky space more welcoming and inclusive of non-white, non-cis, differently abled people. There's a lot more awareness of consent issues and creating community norms and practices that promote consent. Feel free to to jump in at any point, Lance, because I know this is a long monologue. Right? <laughs> yeah, what I was thinking of was that that activism is very selfish in nature, and I'm not saying that in a bad yes. way. I think it's very self-preserving, and, and I think that's very positive, in my opinion. I think selfishness can be a very positive trait when it's done for the right reasons. But, and but, that's your conservatism speaking. Right. Right. I mean, <laughs> I yeah. guess it is. Yes. Right. Well, I don't know how positive it ended up being, but I do see your point and I appreciate the goodwill. So anyway, this focus on justice and inclusion isn't actually new in the kink community. In the 1970s, leaders in the leather community worked hard to defend the LGBT community overall, worked continuously to raise awareness and almost a million dollars during the AIDS crisis. The former leather dyke Patrick Califia wrote several canonical works on BDSM as a form of feminist empowerment, was an anti-war activist during the Vietnam War era, started an organization called SAMWA, which was the very first BDSM organization. According to his Wikipedia entry, this will be a quote, Califia rejected the essentialist feminist ideology that women are better or more nurturing or peaceful or more loving, more relationship oriented and less raunchy in bed. Instead, advocating for BDSM, the consensual integration of power, pain, domination and submission into sex. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, Many feminists were won over to Califia's views on sadomasochism, not from his arguments, but from his erotic fiction. They, uh, quote, they read Califia's SM fantasies, got turned on and got over it. Hmm. <laughs> so that's another example of, of the power of sex and eroticism. It can change your mind about profoundly ideological things. However, like today, even back then, the focus seems to have been on the sexual empowerment of the submissive or the bottom, at least where women were concerned. Not that that's a bad thing, but as a femdom, it's not super relevant to my lifestyle or to our dynamic. And there are femdoms out there like myself who do prefer to focus at least heterosexual female power exchange on meeting our needs, the femdom's needs, before the needs of the male sub. Also, while I personally am not a female supremacist, there are a few prominent femdom writers and commentators who seem to want to use femdom as 
a path toward female empowerment at a very high social and cultural level, right? Female supremacy. I do think that femdoms can provide valuable perspectives on a variety of pertaining to heterosexual relationships and um, and feminism. And down deep, I do personally really feel that all men should be my personal slaves. That is a <laughs> deeply held instinct that I have. I don't push it and I and I don't usually try to act on it, I guess. At least the men who I'm attracted to, though, you know, not maybe not all men. Hmm. Um, and that does include a few very charismatic male doms that I've met. But I'm definitely not going to hold my breath for them. <laughs> so you want to dom the doms? Not categorically, but there are a few that are are pretty hot, you know. Regardless, the social justice and progressive politics within the broader kink and BDSM universe, it's not that protecting subs and meeting their needs isn't important. It's just not everything that kink is about. And it's not even necessarily about protecting the needs of femdoms. Sadists, sadists, and sadism have also been connected to social justice throughout history. Destruction is necessary for creation. Sometimes the use of violence is necessary for justice to prevail. And one example of a sadist who committed most of his adult life to writing about and actually fighting for liberal progressive ideals was the Marquis de Sade himself. Yes, he did do several very bad non-consensual things during his lifetime, but he also wrote tirelessly against the abuses and hypocrisies of the Catholic Church and of the French monarchy. And he spent almost half of his adult life in prison without ever being charged or convicted of anything for his writing. In fact, he even fought in the French Revolution on the side of the revolutionaries in the streets of Paris for several years, even though he was an aristocrat. <laughs> Talk about going against your own self-interest. He was a monarch. I mean, not a monarch, but an aristocrat. He like was a said. marquis. Yeah. He yeah, he was a count, you know, and he that it just wasn't important to him. It was hypocritical. Mm -hmm. He was actually imprisoned for the last time in 1801 by Napoleon, Napoleon himself, who had usurped power over the revolutionary government and military. And in 1809, Napoleon took away all of his writing implements and he died in solitary confinement in 1814. Wow, that's a long, long time. Oh, my God. Yeah. He spent a total of 37 years in prison without ever having been charged of one thing, of one crime. He was also followed around by Louis XV and then Louis XVI's secret service for every day of his life after, like, the age of 25. Hmm. <laughs> and it wasn't because he was rapey. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. a lot of people were rapey. His uncle was extremely rapey his... and also got. Yeah, his writings were far more dangerous than his actions. Yeah, and his writings were a lot rapier than his actions, too. His uncle was a lot worse than he was. Also got followed around by the Secret Service. 
but never got arrested. Anyway, to conclude, I do still strongly support social justice. I donate to an organization called the Poor People's Campaign. And when I'm fully vaccinated, I will resume volunteering at a local homeless shelter. However, I no longer find social justice sexy, unfortunately, except sometimes feminism and its connections to femdom I do find sexy. But honestly, what's sexy about it to me is the transgression. It's the aggressive challenge, the often physically aggressive challenge to traditional gender dynamics. Do you have anything to say there? <laughs> the takedown. Yeah, yeah, it's it's the primal. It's also the getting in people's faces. Don't don't you consider that attractive and exciting? You know, I think that we don't do that very aggressively, but no, we we, try I, we to don't do really it. have to do it. It just is who we are. You know? <laughs> You're right. Just by being ourselves out in, out in the world. Yeah, we we try to be polite and <laughs> let the other people speak, but we do want we at do least make sure that they understand what's going on with us. And, and, and at least we want to get into their face. <laughs> at least I do. <laughs> Maybe we can get a, get better at doing that. But our relationship does symbolize and enact gender transgressions and the transgression of male supremacy, certainly. I'm not suggesting that my fetish is more important than social justice or equality from women. And if male privilege and male supremacy were miraculously eradicated overnight, I would be overjoyed. Mm -hmm. But I would also be a little disappointed from my sex life. Because um, without those, yeah. Would you really? Would you? Yeah, or would you have would. free license to start uh, raping and pillaging, as we talked about in the last podcast? <laughs> I don't think it would be as fun. Those traditional dynamics, you know, it's the transgression. Yeah. Um, and and the the gender part of the transgression is the spice. It's it's one of the hottest things about our relationship. I agree. So anyway, that's all for today. Thank you very much for listening. And hang on through the next couple of months. We will be on social media more often. So check us out there. And uh, keep an eye out for our former Patreon-only episodes. And until next time, have fun, folks. Thank you.